Welcome to Skim This. It's the start of summer, usually a quiet time, but it's 2021, so obviously not. We've got the latest on what could be a big leadership change in Israel, a sporting surprise in France, and why most people in Japan are like, aren't we still in a pandemic? Why are we still holding the Olympics? Then we'll look at how the U.S. can help the rest of the world get vaxxed and the urgency of doing that ASAP. Fun fact, economists say those vaccines you probably received for free are actually worth thousands of dollars. Later, we'll turn a spotlight on a period of American history that's been overlooked for too long. And we'll serve up a summer read to take you on an overseas vacation, even if you're staying right where you are. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. First up, Israel, where there are two new names we might soon get used to hearing, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. Here's the context. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been in office for 12 years, but the last few have involved constant challenges to his leadership. He's faced four elections in just the last two years, a sign of his inability to build a ruling coalition strong enough to withstand outside pressure, which somehow he did for a really long time, until this week when his haters finally came together, announcing their own eight-party coalition and avoiding a fifth election in the process. To cater to that many different political interests, they're going to try to divide up responsibilities. Naftali Bennett will serve as prime minister for two years, while Yair Lapid serves as foreign minister. And after that, if everything holds, the two men will swap jobs. And while this coalition deal could mean a big defeat for Netanyahu, Israel's longest-serving prime minister, it's not clear how much would actually change politically. Experts say this new coalition doesn't have too much in common other than their dislike of Netanyahu. In fact, this whole proposed coalition is a pretty motley crew. Here's a comparison the news website Slate made to show you just how wacky this would be if it went down in U.S. politics. It's basically like if Joe Biden and Ted Cruz agreed to a presidency swap, and AOC and Liz Cheney were part of the cabinet. Nice one, Slate. Getting all of those people to work together is just one challenge this government would face. And the other is still Netanyahu, who, at the time we published this, was reportedly DMing all his friends to try to block this deal. So, at least for now, who's going to run things in Israel is still TBD. Alright, next up. The U.S. immigration policy known as Remain in Mexico is officially a thing of the past. Here's the context. In 2018, former President Trump implemented a policy forcing asylum seekers to go back to Mexico until their immigration hearings. It was called the Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP, but it became known as Remain in Mexico. Human rights groups called that policy illegal. They say it violated international agreements signed by the U.S., including one banning asylum seekers from being returned to countries where they'd likely face persecution. According to one report, that's exactly what happened. Of those sent back to Mexico, more than 1,500 people were reportedly either murdered, raped, kidnapped, or targeted in violent attacks. President Biden hit pause on the Remain to Mexico policy after coming into office, and as of this week, it's gone for good. But that might sound better than it actually is. 
Migrants are still being turned away at the U.S.'s southern border under Title 42, a rule that lets the government deny people entry if they're coming from a country where there's an infectious disease. So even if you read that President Biden is completely opening the U.S. border, the reality is quite a bit different. Here's something else you might have heard about this week. 41 women are now in charge of Fortune 500 businesses, the highest count ever. Here's the context. This is a big deal. Fortune 500 companies are seen as business leaders, and having a record-breaking number of women running those companies bodes well for having more diverse boardrooms. But if you're also thinking 41 out of 500 doesn't seem like much, you'd be right. That's only 8% of those top jobs. The same is true for the fact that for the first time ever, two of those female CEOs are black. That's a milestone, but also two out of 500? Come on. And our final headline this week? This one's a biggie for anyone with an Amazon Echo or a Ring security camera. Amazon announced this week that it's going to create a shared wireless network for its smart home devices, called Sidewalk. Basically, if your home Wi-Fi goes down but your neighbor's got a Ring camera, Sidewalk means your Amazon devices will stay online because they're getting a slice of your neighbor's Wi-Fi. But there are security concerns that the encryption Amazon says exists within this service might not work as well as promised. Plus, Amazon hasn't exactly been transparent with users about this. It's only giving people until June 8th to opt out. Otherwise, Sidewalk will be added to your Amazon devices automatically. So if you'd rather just not, open the Alexa app, click on Settings, and then More. Then look for Sidewalk Settings, where you can turn it off. You're welcome. Shocking move by tennis star Naomi Osaka. Naomi Osaka, the number two ranked player in the world, has just withdrawn from the French Open. The decision came a day after tennis officials threatened to suspend her and fined her $15,000 over her decision not to do media interviews. Over the weekend, Naomi Osaka shocked the tennis world when she did something not a lot of top athletes tend to do. She dropped out of a tournament. And not just any tournament, the French Open, which is part of tennis's Grand Slam. So why did the world's highest paid female athlete withdraw? Ultimately, she said, mental health reasons. Just before the tournament began, Osaka said no thanks to talking to tennis media because of their disregard for athletes' mental health. And even though skipping pretty unsubstantial press conferences sounds totally reasonable, talking to the press is technically a contractual obligation for players. So the French Open fined Osaka for not attending and even said, hey, we might expel you from the tournament. Instead of things getting to that point, Osaka just withdrew herself from the rest of the French Open. Since then, her decision has been largely met with praise, especially from other athletes who've commended her bravery. Golden State Warriors basketball star Steph Curry tweeted that he had, quote, major respect for Osaka. And tennis legend Serena Williams said she wished she could give Osaka a hug because she remembered feeling overwhelmed by the press. Some other athletes have come out and said, we feel ya, but doing press is kind of part of the gig. But for many, Osaka's decision has opened up a wider conversation about mental health for athletes, and whether combining high-pressure athletic competition with the intense scrutiny of post-game press conferences is worth it in the first place. 
Other famous athletes have come forward about their own mental health struggles, including Michael Phelps, who's admitted he's struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts since 2014. But Phelps's admission came at the end of his swimming career. Osaka, meanwhile, is at the top of her game right now, and so far is getting a lot of respect for saying you might see one side of this story, like the trophies, the travel, and the perks, but this isn't as easy as it looks. For now, Osaka is going to take some time away from the court, but later wants to work with tennis organizers to make things better for the players, the fans, and the press. And if that means no more press conferences filled with the same old questions and athletes who clearly want to be anywhere else than there, we won't be too upset. All right, let's play a round of Name That News and see if you can guess what this story's about. If you have such a low level of vaccination, of course there's a concern. That's up to the Japanese authorities. The CDC is warning all Americans to avoid travel to Japan because of its latest jump in COVID cases. With 70-odd days to go, we are really stuck in the implementation phase. Okay, if you haven't gotten it yet, this should help. The official stance remains the same. The games will go on no matter what, even if the current state of emergency due to the coronavirus is extended. The 2020 Tokyo Summer Olympics are set to begin next month. And that's not a typo. They're still calling them the 2020 Games because they already printed so much merch. But even though Japan's government and the International Olympic Committee keep saying the games must go on, things are looking a little iffy from where we're sitting. Here's why. When the Olympics got postponed last summer, organizers told Japan the games have to happen by summer 2021 at the absolute latest. But despite a year to prep, COVID-19 is far from under control in Japan. The country has been slow to approve vaccines, approving Pfizer's vaccine in February, three months after the U.S., and shots from Moderna and AstraZeneca just a few weeks ago. Those delays were due to the government asking Pfizer to run additional trials on Japanese citizens in an attempt to overcome widespread vaccine hesitancy. But that also explains why less than 3% of Japan's population are fully vaccinated. Bad news as the country deals with a spike in infections. This fourth wave of infections is straining hospitals in parts of the country where beds and ventilators are in short supply. That doesn't sound great. And the Japanese public seems to agree, with one recent poll showing more than 80% of people didn't think the game should be held this summer. Nevertheless, the first foreign athletes have arrived in Japan for the Tokyo Olympics. Some of Australia's athletes started arriving this week, the first of more than 15,000 athletes expected to descend on the country. And even though the athletes will be in their own bubble, with no foreign fans allowed to attend the games in person, medical experts worry about a possible Olympic strain of the virus developing if there is an outbreak. So if foreigners can't enjoy the games and the Japanese public wants nothing to do with them, what's the big rush? For athletes, it's really their time to shine, and some will age out after this year's Olympics. So we kind of get just wanting to get this over with. There's also money. Full cancellation could spell trouble for the IOC, which gets 75% of its funding from selling broadcasting rights to TV channels. Plus, there's a financial incentive for the Japanese government. It's already spent billions of dollars getting ready for the games, and canceling would mean spending all of that without viewers getting to see nice drone shots of the Japanese beach during the first ever Olympic surfing competition. 
So for now, money seems to talk, and the games are officially on. Even if it means between COVID risks and the possibility that competitions might end up being held in empty stadiums, these Olympics are games nobody wins this year. When was the last time you Googled something about COVID-19? This is kind of our job, so it's in our search history a lot, but for a lot of you guys, it's not. In fact, Google has a feature that lets you see how many people in different countries are searching for a specific phrase. And this week, we tried it out. We picked the U.S. and put in the search term COVID, and it turns out fewer people searched it over the last week than in early March of last year, before COVID was impacting all of our lives. In many ways, that's great. The U.S. and some other wealthy countries, mostly in Europe, have the luxury of not having to frantically research COVID because cases are way down. And if you want a vaccine, you can probably get one. But that's far from the situation everywhere. A few weeks ago on the show, we told you that President Biden wanted to waive patent protections for COVID vaccines to help the whole world get vaxxed. Supporters say waiving patent protections would let more drug companies manufacture doses and speed up vaccine rollout. More than 100 countries back that plan. But to get implemented, basically every country in the world would need to be on board, and they're not. Which means it's back to the drawing board, or just being okay with COVID vaccines being a luxury some have and many don't. To understand where the global vaccine supply is at and what potential solutions might look like, we called up Natasha Loder, and I'm the health policy editor of The Economist. The Economist is known for sprinkling in some pretty strong recommendations for politicians along with its global news coverage. And lately, the magazine hasn't been biting its tongue about global vaccine shortages. It pointed out from the start that Biden's patent plan was hardly a silver bullet and might have even been a PR stunt. But regardless of what Biden was going for, Loder and her colleagues think the U.S. and other wealthy countries can and should be doing a lot to get vaccines to people who need them most. Though she also told us it could be tough convincing politicians of that, especially since they're focused on dealing with COVID at home. It's quite hard when people are in the middle of dealing with COVID to look beyond their borders. So one of the reasons that governments are holding on to vaccine at the moment is that they're worried they're going to get blowback from their own population. And there's been quite a reluctance to talk about that in many countries across the EU, across UK, across America. But as more of those populations get vaccinated, and specifically in the US as vaccine hesitancy becomes a bigger problem than vaccine access, Loader sees an opening. We know that all these rich countries are going to have surpluses of vaccine and that at some point it's going to need to be donated or sold. And I suspect that as people become less interested in their own vaccination, that actually the ability for politicians to find some movement, or some room for maneuver on vaccine donations will grow. The news right now should also put some pressure on countries to help too. The COVID-19 tsunami. Paraguay, Peru, and Uruguay is among the countries with the highest COVID-19 deaths per capita in the world. Malaysia has gone into a strict nationwide lockdown as coronavirus infections rise. The Economist recently crunched the numbers and estimated the global COVID death toll is likely between 7 and 12 million people, which would be two to three times the official count. 
And with so many countries battling huge COVID spikes and not even able to properly count their dead, there's no time to wait to get vaccines out there. Vaccines are only being distributed to a kind of small minority of people around the world. The rollout has been very successful in Europe and America, Britain and a few other countries. But the rest of the world is very much waiting. And certainly the low-income countries in Africa really haven't received any vaccine at all. At this small hospital in Chad's capital, N'Djamena, there are no debates over how to best roll out vaccines to everyone. There are simply no vaccines at all. As the richest nations buy up the lion's share of doses, how and when will developing countries be able to vaccinate their populations? Only six of Africa's 54 countries have begun to vaccinate their populations. So how did we get here? And how do we get out of here? Loader told us some of the reasons we're here are pretty obvious. The first is that wealthy countries hoarded more doses of the vaccine than they needed, which means... The first thing we can do is we can start donating vaccine. That's simple enough. And to its credit, the U.S. is already doing a lot of this. It's donated or pledged to donate 80 million doses so far, but it's still sitting on a large stockpile of unused vaccines. And on top of that, it's prioritizing vaccinations for low-risk adolescents, while many other countries don't even have first doses for high-risk groups. Loader says the U.S. called dibs on a lot of things used to manufacture vaccines, making it more difficult for other countries to produce their own doses. One of the things that America did to support its own vaccine-making industry was use the Defense Production Act, and that kind of essentially gives it first dibs on pretty much anything it needs in its own supply chains. Now, unfortunately, global supply chains are really, really connected. And in fact, your Pfizer vaccine relies on imports from 19 countries. And if every country in the world behaved like that, vaccine production would come to a halt. And so this Defence Production Act has really kind of gummed up supply chains. And one of the bits of reporting I've been doing has been sort of showing how production lines outside America have been essentially grinding to a halt because they're missing a filter or a bit of tubing or whatever it is. And they usually get that from America, but they just can't get it out. Loader says now that Americans are vaccinated, the U.S. should start letting other countries buy those essential production elements again. The lives that could be saved as a result of acting fast are already a strong enough motivation to do that. But there's also an economic case to be made for helping countries struggling with COVID. According to The Economist, while two doses of vaccine cost an average of $4 to make, their value to recipients is closer to $3,000. And if you add that to healthcare, education, and productivity savings when people don't get sick, that value is estimated to be way higher. So distributing cheap vaccines could prevent much higher bills for other countries later. With so many clear benefits to acting fast, Loader says it's time to get to work. What we really need is for these rich countries, the G7 countries, to kind of come together and make a big statement about donating a lot of vaccine. Because at the end of the year, there'll be plenty. So they really need to get that vaccine out now. Natasha Loader's COVID podcast for The Economist, The Jab, is available everywhere. This week marks 100 years since the Tulsa Race Massacre, one of the worst episodes of racial violence in U.S. history. Back in 1921, an area of Tulsa, Oklahoma, was a thriving neighborhood for thousands of Black Americans. 
that became known as Black Wall Street. We have very prosperous African-Americans who owned hotels and movie theaters and restaurants and doctors and lawyers and all sorts of businesses. That's Dr. Shanidra Nowell. She's an associate professor of social studies education at Oklahoma State University. It was really important that we kind of understand the prosperity of this community and how it was this jewel for the Black community. But of course, Tulsa's whites were not feeling the same way. They were very envious, very jealous. How can those people have those things? So you kind of get this clash between, you know, these two groups. And this all came to a head in 1921 on Monday, May 30th. It was Memorial Day. On that day, a violent white mob terrorized the area after a black man was falsely accused of rape. 30 square blocks, 10,000 homes, businesses were destroyed. Blacks left homeless, families left homeless. The massacre goes on all night long and pretty much through the next day. In total, as many as 300 Black residents were killed and hundreds more were injured. And this was far from an isolated incident. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, Black Americans were targeted and killed en masse in northern cities like New York, Chicago, and Detroit, as well as in southern states like Louisiana and Georgia. Other massacres of Black Americans should have just had a national spotlight shown on them at their 100-year commemorations, but they didn't. Like the 1919 massacre in Elaine, Arkansas, in which more than 200 predominantly Black cotton farmers were killed. Or the massacre of a handful of Black citizens hoping to vote in the 1920 election in Okoy, Florida. All of which begs the question, why are a lot of us learning, or in the case of Elaine or Okoy, not learning, about this history now. At least in Tulsa, Dr. Nowell told us that's because a lot of people didn't want to talk about it after the fact. In Tulsa, we talk about there being a community, a culture of silence over this event. That culture of silence was upheld by lawmakers and local officials for decades. It really was, I think, the late 80s, early 90s, when Oklahoma government kind of did a race riot, what that time was called a race riot commission, to study what happens. Like, we really need to find some answers. And that first commission report, I think, was released in 1991. And so we really are talking, you know, 70 years after the event where there was concerted effort to gather some of these stories. Now, what happened in Tulsa 100 years ago is only starting to be talked about in the media. But Dr. Nowell told us this conversation also has to happen in the classroom. I think it does come down to education in some ways. But when I talk to teachers about why they're not teaching it, they just feel like they don't know enough. Heather Goodenough, a social studies teacher in Broken Era, Oklahoma, agrees. I think that it has not been taught because too many people are afraid of having difficult conversations and where that conversation might lead, what topics may come from that. And they're just, honestly, they're just afraid. And so I think that the fear has driven this topic specifically, but other difficult history as well, to just be kind of brushed aside and not discussed because people don't like to be uncomfortable. Learning about race-related prejudice in schools is still an uphill battle, not just in Oklahoma, but in a lot of communities. You may have heard about the debate over teaching critical race theory in schools. It's a theory that explores the role of systemic racism in U.S. history. Some state legislators have recently started taking a stand about whether that theory should be taught in their states. Last month, that battle came to Oklahoma. 
the governor signed a bill banning the teaching of classes or concepts that cause any student to, quote, feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress due to their race or gender. And while the bill doesn't explicitly name critical race theory, it's basically considered to be a ban. This isn't just playing out in Oklahoma. Idaho and Tennessee have also passed similar laws, and other bills have been introduced in Rhode Island and Ohio. And as these laws go into effect and change how educators do their jobs, teachers who included this history in their curriculum, or who wanted to, are either being stopped from doing so, or feel the need to defend their decisions. We have had a lot of those calls of, I don't want my kid to learn this. And so I often address it with, you know, my personal children. I want them to understand what people feel around them because I want them to develop empathy. And I don't think that we can truly develop empathy if we don't understand where people are coming from. And so it's important that these uncomfortable conversations are had with our kids because we want them to understand someone else's background and develop empathy. Dr. Now says when she's taught the story of Tulsa, it's helped her students not just learn history, but also the world they live in now. I would talk with this with my students when I was teaching high school about the idea of white guilt. I don't want you to feel guilty about what happened. I want you to think about how this event affected your own community. Tulsa, in a lot of ways, is still a segregated city. Different groups lived in different parts of town. And when I would teach this to my high schoolers, when I was teaching in Tulsa, they're like, oh, well, that explains some things. So really helping my students understand like the city that they live in is really important, but they need to understand like this event and and basically the scars that it's left in our community and then think about what would you do to change the community? And I think that's really important. And Goodenough says these aren't lessons that only K through 12 students need to learn. I think if we talk about it, teach about it, and I think we're going to have to have even adult learning classes because while we're teaching these kids, adults like myself didn't learn about it in high school or even college for that matter. And so I think that we are going to have to be more open-minded and be more willing to listen. And I think it's going to take time. I think we're going to have to to be uncomfortable. We're going to have to get out of our chairs, out of our comfort zones, and get up and talk about it and have a conversation and bring everyone to the table to discuss it. I think that we can't hide behind this whole American exceptionalism anymore because we have to talk about there is good, there is bad, there is ugly. And if we don't talk about all of it, we cannot progress to be a better country. And if we really want to be a better country, we have to talk about the ugly. Before we go today, we're wrapping up the show this week with something a little different, a book recommendation. The winner of the 2021 International Booker Prize is At Night, All Blood is Black, written by David Diop, translated by Anna Moshevakis. The International Booker Prize is a really big deal in the literary world. It's for international translated fiction. And right now, reading a book from somewhere else is kind of refreshing. 
During these past strange months, we judges have scarcely left our homes, and yet we have been traveling the world. And while some of the most acclaimed literary minds saying this is excellent should be reason enough for us to add it to our cards, we still wanted to ask someone who had already finished the book, what's it all about? So we called up Lily Meyer, a writer, translator, and book critic. At Night All Blood is Black is about a Senegalese soldier named Alpha Njai who goes to fight with his childhood best friend in the trenches in World War I. And when his best friend, Madamba, is killed, Alpha is with him. He watches his friend die slowly and painfully. And this naturally sparks in him a desire for revenge, which gets out of control. And he knows it's out of control and yet can't quite seem to rein himself in. I would call it a friendship love story. The loss for Alpha, the loss of his friend, is just so unbelievably painful. If you're thinking, seriously, after the year we've just had, can't I read something fun? Meyer says this book is important, even if its subject matter is heavy. The author, David Dio, is of Senegalese descent, and not very much Senegalese literature at all has been translated. It's exciting that American readers are getting a chance, increasingly, to start reading the literature of the whole world, not just of a chunk of the world. Also, Meyer says, this book is just plain good. First of all, it is just astonishingly compelling in the way that dark books can sometimes be. And second, it's a real exploration of what humanity means, both in the sense of humanity as compassion and humanity as the thing that you can lose during war or in any brutal situation. This is not a book to go into lightly or a book to take lightly, but it is a very, very, very worthwhile book to read. Okay, so maybe not a sunny day at the beach read, but maybe a damn this long weekend is rained out kind of beach read. We've left a link to pick up a copy in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Kira Long. This episode was engineered by Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday, when hopefully I'm feeling a little bit better. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.